From Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal, and this is a Vinepair podcast conversation. We're bringing you these episodes in between our regular podcasts so that we can explore a range of issues and stories in the drinks world. And today I have the privilege of speaking with Allison Wilson. She's the Director of Vineyard Operations at Cliff Lady Vineyards. Allison, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Zach. It's so nice to finally get to talk to you again. I know, I know. You and I had the opportunity to uh, talk a little bit uh, down in Napa Valley, where you're based uh, back in the bygone era, I believe, September 2019. Little did we know. Um, so let's let's start a little bit. Maybe you can just give me a little bit of background, both uh, about yourself and your kind of origins in viticulture, and then maybe a little bit about uh, Cliff Lady Vineyards as well. Yeah. So um, I'm I'm currently director of vineyard operations at um, Cliff Lady Vineyards, um, based in Yonville. Um, prior to Cliff Lady, I, I guess my my origin story. I was thinking about it earlier. Um, it's kind of a combination of luck, timing, curiosity, hindsight. You know, when I look back on how did I get here and, and decide to do this, there's a lot of different paths that I could tell. Um, but I, I grew up in the East Bay. Um, I, I had a great uncle who had a vineyard in Livermore Valley. We would go down there for um, harvest parties and weekend trips. And I, it was just a whole different life than, than growing up in the East Bay. And I always was kind of interested in agriculture. Um, fast forward to time to go to college, and this is where it was kind of a series of curiosity and luck. I decided to study fruit science. Partially, okay. I just thought that it was funny at the time, a 17-year-old applying to college, and and partially I was interested to do something that was totally out of my realm. Um, so I went down to uh, Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo and studied. Um, I was it was the only. A student that wore rainbow sandals to class. And it, it took about three years to buy my first pair of boots when a professor told me I was going to chop a toe off when I was um, digging holes to plant pistachio um, trees. And I, I started working in a tasting room down there. And um, it was then that it clicked that this crazy thing that I was studying could actually be a career. Um, and I wouldn't have to end up in the Central Valley farming walnuts and almonds. I could end up in the Napa Valley farming um, grapevines. So sounds a little nicer. I agree. <laughs> yeah, it, it's not, it sounds a little bit more appealing to me, even though I do respect my brothers and sisters who farm the nut crops all throughout California. I'm happy to be in Napa Valley. So I um, just started applying for jobs. <laughs> um, I got really lucky. I met um, Oscar and his father, Salvador Renteria, and was hired on um, with them. They asked me to start about a week after I um, graduated, so didn't know what I was getting myself into. <laughs> Wasn't quite sure what job I was showing up for on that first day, but um, I showed up and they took me under their wing and really helped me cultivate my career. And um, from there, I was, you know, got involved in industry groups and met Remy Cohen, who was previously with um, Lady Family Wines, and I have been with the Cliff Lady team for a little bit over six years now. And so let's start with just a, a very kind of simple question, but I think one that I love to talk about with people who work in viticulture, which is, you know, what are some things that you think that our listeners who are, you know, a mix of people who are wine enthusiasts, uh, people in the trade, like your job, I think is often 
both maybe the most mysterious uh, to people, not that winemaking itself doesn't have its mysteries, but, but it's a piece of the puzzle that a lot of people, you know, you go visit a winery, you probably go to the tasting room, you taste the wines, you may get to go out in the vineyards, depending on where you are. But, you know, frankly, even for someone like me, who's a professional, you know, you look at a vineyard and you go, okay, great, looks pretty cool. Um, You know, most of us don't have the sort of uh, you know, agricultural or botanical sense to really know what we're looking at. So, so just maybe with at a basic level, like when you're looking at either uh, a vineyard as a whole, a row of vines, or an individual vine itself, like when you're looking at this, like what are you looking at? Wow, it's like such a loaded question. Um, you know, it's it's just as romantic as we make it seem. I'm just, oh, good. No, I'm joking. Um, it's you know, when I look at a vine, what what do I what do I think? You know, every single vine, and it sounds corny, especially when we have, you know, densities of more than 1500 vines per acre, but every vine really is, is an individual plant. Um, sometimes, um, we have to figure out as grape growers, how to get the best expression out of that plant, but in its big, in, in the, in the bigger picture of everything. So I think a lot of times us who are viticulturalists who farm, we really want to sit there and dial in every single vine, but sometimes we need to walk away from it and, and look at, at how we're going to make the whole vineyard um, produce with the nuance that the winemaking team um, and eventually the consumer is looking for, if that makes sense. Sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> And, and I want to put a pin in that conversation about the sort of information flow between you and the winemaking team, because I think that's something I, I do want to ask about in a minute. But I also want to ask kind of when it comes to managing vineyards, especially in a place like Napa Valley, where, you know, I don't think it's uh, going too far to say that, like, the cost of doing everything is high. You know, the land is expensive. The w- resulting wine is usually expensive. This is a silly question, maybe, but like, do you ever get nervous? Like there's more, it feels like there's more at stake every time you, you know, prune or, 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 you know, uh, shoot thin or you, you drop fruit or whatever it is you do. Like, I, I don't know. Is that, is that ever enter the, the thought process? Oh, all the time. Um, it's kind of a simultaneous thought of, you know, I was joking with a few girlfriends who do, do what I do the other day is it's, it's extremely difficult to kill a grapevine. Um, you have to work really hard to kill a grapevine, but then at the same time, every single year we're making multi-million dollar decisions. So when you're, you know, at, at Lady Family Wines, we we have our estate vineyards, but we also have long-term growers that we purchase fruit from, such as you know the Beckstoffer Toklon Vineyard, and and we have full control over what happens viticulturally in that vineyard, um, all the way down to how much fruit we're going to drop on the ground. So every time you make a decision to, to leave some fruit on the ground, it's, you know, you're, you're potentially making pretty expensive decisions. Um, so we kind of have that push pull of, you know, it would be really hard for this vine to actually die. That's, you know, nice security (laughs) that we have, and, you know, we kind of joke about it. Um, and then the pull of the tiny decisions we make, season to season are going to be impactful financially and also impactful um, physiologically for that vine, you know, five, 10 years into the future. I want to ask one more kind of maybe slightly difficult question, or at least it's uh, hopefully not too painful a question, but, but obviously, you know, you're in Napa Valley and in this past September, in addition to dealing with everything that we've all been dealing with since last March uh, in the U S you guys had, serious fires. And I, I don't, you know, my sense of the geography isn't perfect. And I don't 
have perfect recollection. Was there was there risk to your vineyards during those fires? What was that period of time like for you and for your team? Um, this year, the, the, this last year, um, you know, it seems like there's fires almost every year. Um, we our, our estate vineyards were not directly in the path of the fires, but we unfortunately had some grower partners who were definitely um, in the path, especially up on Howell Mountain and Diamond Mountain. Um, this year, you know, the fires versus 2017 came a lot earlier in the growing season and there was a longer um, sustained time of smoke exposure. So we actually, um, as a team this year, because of all the smoke exposure, um, after we brought the fruit in, you know, we made the wine how we normally would, and then and then we sent it off to the lab. But mainly, we um, brought the team in to have you know some sensory panels on on the wine. We decided that we were going to um, skip the 2020 vintage. Oh, wow. Okay. I wasn't necessarily aware of that, but that is interesting. And obviously I'm sure will be an ongoing conversation, not just for, for you and for, uh, you know, Cliff Lady, but for growers and, and winemakers throughout Napa. Um, and one that we'll, I'm sure, explore further on the podcast. I'm curious now, um, maybe stepping into this um, nexus point between you and your team and the winemaking team, what what is that relationship like? You know, obviously you're all working together to produce the best wine you can. So it's not as if there's, I don't think, uh, a lot of conflict. I hope, but but just in terms of like kind of how how you communicate with the winemaking team, what is going on in the vineyard, how they communicate to you, what they're looking for. Like, what is that relationship like? Yeah, you know, I I Cliff Lady, we're a pretty small team in our estate. You know, we have sixty acres of a state vineyard. Um, and then we, we have those long-term grower partners that I mentioned, and this will be my seventh vintage at Cliff Lady and my seventh year with, uh, Christopher Tyne and our winemaker. So we're super lucky to have, um, been able to develop this longer term relationship and, and started to understand each other and how we work better. Um, I, I would say that our information flow is, is not even a flow. It's just, it's, it's a, it's a constant, you know, working together. So we walk the vineyard pretty much weekly during the growing season together. Um, I get the opportunity to go into the winery and um, taste lots with them. Albeit sometimes um, when we're tasting 90 lots, I get a little bit overwhelmed (laughs) and um, I can't hang sometimes, but I get to take part in, um, in all of those tastings and in the information flow is, is just as good as it possibly um, could be. And come harvest time, we all kind of fall into our roles. I schedule the the harvest with Chris. I get him out into the vineyard every single day to get his opinion where he thinks the fruit is. I, I push uh, brick samples onto him, whether he likes them or not, um, <laughs> in, in hopes to entice him to make decisions. And then I, I deal with kind of all of the operations and in, in logistics of what we're going to bring in. Um, and in, in his team helps me determine, you know, how much capacity we can bring in every day based on tanks. So it's a really fun relationship. Um, being at such a small winery, um, it, it allows it, it allows our team to really work together every single day to decide um, what we're going to do in the vineyard. And I'm curious, you know, one of the things that's really interesting to me about that relationship and and how it evolves is that it maybe kind of does work both ways. Have you changed your, uh, in, in any kind of specific ways you can talk about, like the, your viticultural practices based on a uh, response from the winemaking team? Or are there things that you do differently now than when you started uh, you know, six years ago? 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, I came from uh, vineyard management before. So before I was at Cliff Lady, I was managing um, vineyard about 2000 acres with 60 different clients that all had, you know, different varietals, different wine programs. And I really didn't get to work with winemakers um, very often when I was in vineyard management, because I was just kind of another, um, you know, just another person on on the list in charge of one specific thing. So coming into an estate um, operation like Lady Family Wines um, that had been, you know, farmed and planted by David Abreu and um, we had brought it in-house farming was totally new to me. Okay. And the possibility, you know, it's the dream, right? You you want to have one crew and one estate and get to really refine all of the techniques you use. So when I came in, I, I was able to do so much more handwork than I ever did before. Um, a lot of shoot tying, um, a lot of a lot of passes to really um sculpt the cluster, I'll right. say, um, to just have that fruit hang absolutely. Um, ideally with the the right amount of sun, that that was really the big change for me coming to an estate um, operation. So let's talk a little bit about for a, for a higher, from a higher level perspective, not, not too detailed unless we want to, you know, most of what you're growing uh, at the estate vineyards is, um, you know, Cabernet Sauvignon, Bordeaux varieties, but also, you know, Lady Family Wines does a fair bit of Pinot Noir. And, and you know, because those are two varieties that I think are both pretty well known to most people and also are, I think my understanding is pretty different from a bit of cultural standpoint. Can you kind of talk about what, as a grower, what the main differences are between those, those grapes, maybe, you know, both in terms of what you do would do as a bit of culturalist year to year, and also maybe just kind of like where they do best. Yeah. So again, prior to coming to Cliff Lady, um, at Renteria, we farmed a lot of, um, Chardonnay and Pinot Noir and Carneros. So I have a little bit of background um, in that. And and when I thought about this question of the difference between Cab and Pinot, it, again, another kind of loaded question. It, it, it's like, um, like a religion, right? Like they all start from like the same basis and then they branch off. They're both, they're both grapes. That's, that's the, the thing I can say about them and how they're similar, but um, Pinot Noir, such a, such a delicate, um, tight cluster. I, I think that, you know, the word actually derives from the pine or something like that, you know. Yeah, pine cone. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I'm like, I don't know French, but I think that that's correct. Um, and Cabernet Sauvignon is so much thicker skinned and, and resilient. And then also just the climates that they're grown in. So cooler climates, hotter climates. Um, the, the interesting thing about the Pinot Noir and Cabernet um, for us at Lady Family Wines is we, we acquired this property down in Carneros, um, kind of off of Duhigg and 86, it was 86 acres of Pinot Noir and, um, Chardonnay. And we pulled it all out and replanted it all. And, um, we have replanted some Pinot and Chardonnay, but we've also planted Cab, Cab Franc, Merlot, and some other kind of fun varietals down there. So we're actually going to get the opportunity to really grow Pinot and Cab at the same location and see, see side by side what they do. We, we really feel like Bordeaux's um, can do well in Carneros. And it's kind of the beginning of a new experiment for us at Lady Family Wines. Excellent. And, and just to, to kind of clarify one last thing for me in this. So, you know, 
often when I talk to winemakers about, say, the difference between varieties like Cabernet Sauvignon and Pinot Noir, they talk about, you know, what you sort of mentioned, that Pinot Noir is delicate, Cabernet Sauvignon is hearty. Does that extend beyond the cluster itself to the vine more broadly or or from a, you know, when you're making decisions about about everything involving the vine, do you not have to worry about that? It's just kind of centered around what the, the differences in the cluster are. The clusters are a big part of it. And then, like I was saying, the climate. So it, it's hard to, because I was thinking about this a lot and I don't have a lot of sites that have both Cab and Pinot. So sure. can, it seems like kind of comparing apples to oranges a little bit, right? Because in Carneros, you're you're going to have that cooler weather, you know, Anderson Valley as well. You're going to have um, higher pest pressure. That's a big one. You know, a, a program for, um, you know, mildew prevention and, and, Pinot Noir versus Cabernet is going to be like night and day. It's going to be okay. maybe, you know double the amount of passes for the Pinot Noir, but but how much of that is climate and and how much of that is the varietal? I'm not sure yet. Okay, well maybe we'll have to circle back in a few years yeah. when that Carneros property is more fully established and and find out. Um, let's talk a little bit more. I'm just curious. You know, you you mentioned that there's um, you know you kind of have this newer property in Carneros. Um, obviously, there are the properties uh, in the properties in Napa Valley and then in the Anderson Valley. But just from your personal perspective, are there varieties that you're not currently growing that you would just be excited to give a, a give you know get, try your hand at? There are, and luckily at the, this new 86 acres down in Carneros, um, Cliff kind of gave me free reign to plant a few uh, quote unquote, um, experimental blocks. So okay. some of the varietals that I've always wanted to plant it, I've, or I've always wanted to grow. We've planted down there. Um, we have some Gamay Noir, okay. which I just, I love Gamay Noir. I, I like drinking it. I think it's an interesting grape, um, for still wine. We planted a little bit of that. We planted some, um, Marsan and some Roussan, which there's just not a whole lot of that in the Napa Valley. Um, I don't know if, you know, the hankering for that is from my central coast um, beginning, but I just want to see how it does in Napa. And I think that um, we have a lot of Sauvignon Blanc and maybe there's room for, you know, a few more, a few more varietals um, I'm down there. So I'm actually getting, getting to grow a few um, new, new grape varieties that, that I think could, could be pretty interesting. Very fun. And then another fun thing for me, at least, and I, I hope for you too, about the estate property in Yountville is that you guys have some olive trees. And and I think that, um, you know, in so many parts of the world, California included, you know, grapevines and, and olive trees go hand in hand. And so can you talk a little bit about what growing, you know, olive trees is like? And, and what was, I, I don't know, was that new to you when you came to Cliff Lady or what? I, I knew you were going to ask about the olive trees. I, I must. I asked a lot about them when I was there in person too. I know. And <laughs> I, I was like, he's going to ask me about those dang olive trees. And I think in, in 2019, when you came by, that was, that was right before they had told me like, all right, you're going to make olive oil this year. <laughs> yes, um, you were a little nervous if, as I recall. I was definitely really nervous. I was, I, I was a little salty about it. I'm not going <laughs> to lie. I was like, I'm a great farmer. Like, I don't like, I don't, you're confusing me with this other crop. It's, you have to spray it at different times. It's got different pests. I don't even know when we harvest it. Um, I, I was pretty new to olives, um, at Cliff Lady before I had only really, um, taken part in 
in spraying olives um, and irrigating them. So we had, when Cliff planted um, the property and redeveloped it, uh, he planted a bunch of Italian varietals of um, olive trees in, and I don't know if his goal was to necessarily make olive oil or if they were there for landscape, but they planted the right type of olive trees. So we might as well make olive oil. And we always had a partnership with someone where he basically just gave him the olives and he made olive oil and, and we would get some in return. And then we just finally decided, let's just give it a shot ourselves. So in 2019, we, we farmed, <laughs> farmed the olive trees, um, you know, against my better judgment. And um, we, we harvested them and we took them up to um, Kelseyville up in Lake County and up to a cool custom crush up there and made our, all, our own olive oil. So this was the first, the first year um, that we had done it. I thought the, I thought the olive oil was amazing. Um, some people on the team have some different opinions about it. So we're looking to dial it in um, a little bit better. And looking back now, I actually think that farming olives and making olive oil is really fun. It's, it's kind of instant gratification. You, you yes. get the olive oil a lot faster than you get wine. And I don't think I realized that. Um, so we, you know, I was already, um, cooking with my olive oil, you know, a week after it got yeah. pressed. So we were planning on making it in 2020, the fires kind of got in our way and, and slowed everything. So 2021, we're going to be making that olive oil again, and we'll see if, if it's good enough to be available for the consumer. Yeah. And I think you make this, this interesting point that, uh, that I observed a lot when I, uh, when I've traveled in Italy too, is, you know, like with olive oil, it's almost the exact opposite of wine, where like the fresher it is, the better it is, or at least the more complex it is. And as it ages, it mostly just loses the sort of nuance. And and if you can't, you know, I, I remember, you know, being there kind of around harvest time and getting some olive oil and everyone being like, you know, you need to use this in the next month. Like it's not, don't take it home and, you know, like parcel it out, you know, drop by drop. It's like, it'll be just, it won't taste like much um, or certainly won't taste interesting. And so that is kind of a cool thing that in wine, I mean, it's, it's sort of like, you know, the equivalent of Beaujolais Nouveau or something, right. Where it's really like you want it in that moment. And then it's past that point. It's not that you can't use it, but it's not kind of as complex and special. Exactly. One last question for you before, before I let you go, which is, you know, a thing that I'm also very curious about is, and, and this is maybe a, a big question with hopefully not a, a super complicated answer. But one of the things that I've heard from a lot of viticulturalists kind of all over the place is thinking about ways to deal with um, ongoing challenges from climate change. And obviously, in Napa, that's as much an issue as it is anywhere else. And one of and in particular, one of the things that I've heard from a lot of people is, is that one of the, the tactics to kind of combat that from a just kind of uh, you know, overabundance of sun and heat is is denser plantings. Does that ring true to you? And, and what are you looking to do, or maybe already doing, to kind of be prepared for um, you know, sort of shifting climate? That's interesting. Um, I hadn't necessarily heard the the denser planting things. I think that um, it, it's one of those questions that's a day to day question, but then a long term question that we're always thinking about. Um, what can we do tomorrow to conserve water? Um, what can we do to get through this season? Um, and then as a whole, what are the long-term goals? And a lot of the long-term goals you see happening with, you know, planting Bordeaux and Carneros and, and bringing in new varietals throughout the Valley. A lot of people are kind of playing around there. Um, but I, I think that 
for us, what we've done, you know, our, our poetry vineyard is, you know, hillside, western facing, gets a ton of light, really dense planting, um, really low to the ground vines. And it, it's not really a one size fit, fits all. So for us, we're, um, we're working on raising the head height. You know, the vines don't need to be right next to the ground. They don't need that extra heat. Um, and we're trying to find a way to get more hang time on those vineyards that have extreme exposure. So we, um, if you come, if you come down before harvest, you'll see our poacher vineyard is covered with shade cloth okay. um, just to give us a, a little bit more, um, a little bit more time to let those clusters sit on the vine um, and ripen optimally. Um, and I think that a lot of people, I'm personally playing around with more vigorous rootstocks. Um, in the past, people have worked with rootstocks that devigorate. Um, but my philosophy is kind of if if we can get a rootstock that's a little bit more vigorous and we can farm to reduce um, the vegetative qualities, then we have room to to work with to to shade those vines and to have a stronger um, a sink to get the, the grapes to just stay longer. So I think that everyone's kind of playing around on their sites with what they can do to get those grapes to hang longer. Cause we're rounding the corner to, you know, pretty soon we're going to be harvesting Cabernet in August and, and we don't want that. So, um, it's just a, it's, it's, it's a bunch of tinkering <laughs> and, and figuring out what works best. Well, Allison, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Uh, look forward to continuing to see how uh, the Cliff Lady uh, Vineyards kind of um, evolve and, and the new project in Carneros comes online and all that should be super exciting. And uh, hopefully uh, before too long, I can come visit again and you can tell me even more about the olive trees. Yes. Thank you so much for having me on. And we can't wait to finally get to see people in person again. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also, I would love to give a special shout out to my VinePair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping me make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, VinePair Tasting Director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the VinePair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.